0: go, this this is the first you're seeing these notes, they didn't get emailed out to you, they didn't get put out, so that that reduces their usefulness by a factor of like, I don't know what, like, anyway, almost entirely, because the point of the notes is so you can kind of think about those things when you're reading to come and talk about it, as opposed to sit down cold with the notes and try to interact with them, but that's what we're going to do this morning, so my apologies for that, I'll be ahead of, of the game and actually have them out for next not next week, because I will be here next week. Doctor Battle will be doing education hour and filling the pulpit, but the week after we will finish this chapter, uh, Lord willing, chapter five, on Christ. Okay. So as we begin, let me just say a word and also ask any questions, particularly for visitors, if you know, just just around the nature of this book and kind of what we're doing and what this chapter is about. In this book, Nation hundred years ago, so published in nineteen twenty three was trying to put as fine a point as he could on the differences between historic Christianity in various capacities, and what he called, or what was called at the time, liberalism or modernism, and both of those words, liberalism and modernism, have all sorts of meanings and maybe aren't that helpful. In this particular case, we're talking about theological liberalism, and maybe an easy way to kind of get at it is a de-supernaturalized Christianity. Something like that can even be conceived of, honestly. So, a Christianity without reference to like things beyond nature, uh, God Himself. Even uh, we've talked about the knowledge of God, and you know, the, I think the second chapter. The first chapter was the introduction. The second chapter um, really is on doctrine, right? Then the third chapter was on God and man, and in that chapter on God and man, we saw very clearly that there's a, a sense of some kind of divinity that we cannot know. We don't operate with knowledge of God, or even knowledge of the supernatural. We operate as humans, according to the liberals, according to the modernists, with knowledge of this world and nature, but not beyond it. Right? That's kind of this, this notion they're picking up philosophically. And, of course, that's inimical to Christianity. And he wants to show that with the God of man. And in this chapter, chapter 5, as we get here, he wants to focus in, the last chapter 4 is on the Bible, kind of a short one on the Bible. And chapter 5 here is on the main point of the Bible, who is Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the central messianic figure in the Bible. And what do the modernists, or these, these liberal kind of unbelievers, really, in the church hundred years ago, what were they teaching, and what has historic Christianity taught regarding the Christ or the Messiah of God? Any, any thoughts or questions, kind of with that little introduction? Hearing utter silence, we'll move then to our notes, <laughs> and here, the beginning note, uh, this chapter on, on Christ, in which major puts a fine point on some of the differences between the historic Christian understanding of Jesus as Messiah and that of modernism and liberalism. So if you have the text in front of you, we're, we'll kind of talk through the concepts of the text and read a couple little, you know, a couple little morsels, um, but if you're turning, we're on the 69th page. So section to this little section to 79. And the first thing he seems like he does as he, as, he, as he deals with who is the Christ is kind of look at the nature of the Bible and the way, the way modern academics, the way modern teachers of the Bible have kind of sorted out different parts of the Bible. You know, we kind of, just to get a run into it, we, we would say, and he mentioned last week in, the, in the, the chapter on the Bible, plenary inspiration. So what was that doctrine of plenary inspiration again? Plenary coming from the word means full or whole. Anyone kind of pull that one back up? So the plenary inspiration of the Bible, as he kind of mentioned last week, and, and he set it off against um, some kind of straw man attacks upon it, but the plenary inspiration is that the entire Bible is God's word and therefore infallible. It's God's word and it doesn't err. I just I pronounce it like John Gersner, who's <laughs> pronounced it, but he does it with more growling when he talks, which is fun. But anyway, the, the Bible is all God's word. There are no errors in it. It's, it's God's word and therefore he has preserved the writers from error. Right? He didn't preserve the writing from the writers. The, the writing of the Bible takes into account the writers, their historical context, their language, the history around them. All that's part of the Bible, just without error. Right? God preserved these writers. He didn't take them over in such a way that they went into a trance and spit out stuff they didn't know about. That wasn't how it happened. That's a little more the case if you look at the Quran, with uh, many of the revelations, supposed revelations given to uh, Muhammad many times he was in a trance uttering things he didn't really know or, or could even remember. People wrote down what he said around it when he was talking, but it was kind of out of his... It was, it was a way of what we would talk about, dictation or mechanical dictation, where it overrides the person who is through whom the revelation is coming. Right? The Bible is not like that. Uh, the Bible is through the, through the people who the revelation is made, in their context, with their language, according to their knowledge, and so on but preserved from, from error and the very word of God. So God communicating what he wants, his word, through these men. So that's plenary inspiration. Verbal inspiration is down to each single word, the, the very words themselves. The, their forms, plural, singular, dative, case, whatever, are all exactly what God has engineered as well. So we, we believe, and I think the church historically has taught, uh, both plenary inspiration, the whole Bible is inspired, but also that the very words themselves, that's come to a finer point in the modern world where that's been called into question. And Machen's kind of in the middle of all that a hundred years ago as well. But if we look down at the beginning of this first page, we see that he's dealing with people and say, well, what's the most original part of the New Testament? What's the part we can trust the most? What's the primary part of the New Testament? And what are the, maybe the secondary parts, if, if something like that's... Um, if we, understand, you know, if we can understand it. So, do you think, just a question to kind of kick around a bit, there are parts of the Bible that are more important than other parts? Even if the entire thing is the Word of God and inspired, plenary inspiration, are there parts that are more important than other parts? It seems like there's got to be. Right? There absolutely have to be parts that are more fundamental as far as what they reveal, helping us understand other parts that are less fundamental about what they reveal. But that's as we think about that, oftentimes... More in the sense of the history of redemption, in other words, God revealed himself in the ancient past, the Old Testament and so on, with types and shadows, and through the scriptures as well, but in Jesus Christ, in the New Covenant, we have this, like, you know, it's not quite an explosion, but a bright shine of the star of revelation, that is the living Christ of God, and the apostles and the writings around him, so that we get the New Testament around that as well. So we would say, I think, that the New Testament is more important, in a certain sense, than the Old Testament in that it helps us understand better the Old Testament. Right? It gives us, it dials in more clearly uh, what God is doing in His redemptive plan and getting past the types and shadows which are typical and shadowy, according to their nature. Right? Uh, so the clearer revelation of Jesus Christ is just that. It's a clearer revelation, not out of keeping, very much in keeping with, with former revelation, but there's clarity there. Now, that's so we, we might talk about that. There are different parts of the Bible that kind of weigh heavier or, or maybe more important in our overall understanding of being Christian or the Christian life or Christian doctrine. Uh, but we don't often take a different step. It's like a different, different direction of saying, well, you know, there are parts of the Bible in the New Testament in particular that are more primary. They actually represent early Christianity. Uh, and then there are parts of the New Testament that come later and represent later issues in Christianity, and they're not primary or as important. So, he says, well, he takes, one thing makes doing, throughout this book and throughout his career, is dealing with, oftentimes, stepping into the modernist mindset and some of the assumptions they have in order to prove on their own ground that they're wrong and that historic Christianity is correct. Does that make sense? So, it's kind of like assuming some of their, their assumptions, as he, as he comes, in order to debunk them, not because he believes the assumptions. Right? So, in other words, it's like taking your enemy's ground to show that they 're inconsistent, not because you hold the enemy's ground, but you want to say, even on your own terms, you're being inconsistent, let alone these broader historical terms that we can consider. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But, so at the very beginning, he says, "Well, these, these modernists that I 'm talking to, they don't really receive the Gospels because they thought those were written later, but they do receive some of the epistles of Paul. Right? Some of them they would say, yep these are original epistles. Paul actually wrote them. Uh, a number of them, they say they, they didn't, so when, when Mation had written a book just a couple years before this called The Origin of Paul's Religion, that's precisely what he did. He kind of took the liberals on, on their own ground, assuming that most of the New Testament wasn't original and the secondary, uh, but these epistles of Paul, the handful of them that they, the liberals received, he takes those and those alone, and from them shows that uh, the origin of Paul's religion is through Jesus and the Old Testament, not what the liberals were teaching with that. So that kind of makes sense. Any, any questions in, in that? So this is, what he's doing is part of what we might call textual criticism. So being looking at a text, uh, and, and not criticizing it like, look how silly it is, but rather trying to get a scholarly approach to what's the origin of this text, what are some of the changes that have gone on to this text through the years and transmission and so on, and trying to work your way back to get an original text as best you can. Okay, that's something that really occurs in the modern world that doesn't really occur before the 19th century. Okay, we have this received text of the Bible called the TR, Textus Receptus, which means received text, and that's what the Bible is. And suddenly, the scholars start working on it and say, well, we have this enormous breadth of, of textual manuscripts, handwritten copies of the New Testament, and what can we learn as we kind of pull those together and start studying them and seeing the trajectory? So we call that textual criticism, and it can be good, and it can be bad. And I think even in Mason's own time a hundred years ago, it made a lot of his contemporaries nervous. A lot of the conservatives, particularly the fundamentalists that he's kind of working with, so oh, well, we, we kind of reject all that stuff. And I don't think he rejected it at all. But for, as far as his, um, his, his arguing here, he's assuming it. Right? Um, and when you kind of pick that up, it's like, you're like, well, why would Paul be more fundamental or primary than the Gospels? And how are the Gospels at all secondary? Because it's kind of language he's using. Well, he's using the language of the modernists trying to kind of throw it back in their face and say, this doesn't work. Even the way you construe things, this doesn't work. So don't be scared off by textual criticism or even by kind of modernist, liberal historiography, how you go about doing history and what sources you use and how you get back to history. And he's, he's taking on all that and trying to make a case to locate what he calls, and the scholars call, primitive Christianity. <clears throat> so we'll move on quickly from here. What is primitive Christianity. What do he mean by that? Any ideas? Any jokes? There's going to be some jokes in there. Yeah, Bob will tell you something to say. So, for, when you think of something primitive, what's the, what's the word? What do we what do we mean by that? Okay, good. Oh, prime. prime. Exactly. Close to the origin primary, right? Before before it's branched out, before it spreads out. The primitive one is is the early one. And oftentimes in this case of this kind of history, the good one, right? It's been corrupted since then. Things have happened even very early on and corrupted it, but we can get at the primary sources or the, the primitive Christianity. And that's so so what we're looking back through, interestingly, this is very helpful for us even as Bible believing Christians, the Bible isn't the beginning of Christianity. Christianity didn't start with the New Testament. Okay, Christianity started with the work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out the Spirit on the church, Pentecost, and then this apostolic work that's going on in Jerusalem, through Judea, and so on, before Paul even gets on the scene. Right? So it's funny, these, these liberal scholars would take Paul as an as exponent, maybe, of, of possibly, of primitive Christianity, but, primi- but the church goes before him. Right, we see that through all of his writings. I receive these things. I receive these things. I pass them on to you. Right, so he's he's an apostle, but there have been apostles before him. He's the one born out of time. Right, he's the one that comes late on the scene. And um, and so as we look back into Christianity, we read the New Testament, and there it is. But we have to understand that Christianity preceded the New Testament. Right, the New Testament, in some ways, responds to issues that are going on in the early church. Right, where Paul writes the. Say the, the letter to the Corinthian church because of the issues in the Corinthian church. And he wants to instruct them beyond that as well, but that there's already a Corinthian church and it's already doctrinally moving and, and it's, that's, all, that's all part of the historic reality behind the New Testament. Okay? So when we read the New Testament, we're looking back at that early apostolic testimony around this primitive church and the liberals really want that primitive church, at least that's what they say. That's their thing, because they don't want other things to come out of the church So they want to kind of erase those and get back to the primitive Christianity, which they'd like to remake in their own image. And that's kind of how that one goes. So that's what's meant by primitive Christianity. This last point under the the first section, 69 to 73, the thing he's laboring throughout, especially the first half of this chapter and probably all the way through it, is that Jesus wasn't just an example, right? Like the oftentimes the modernists, and you get this today too and kind of, what maybe is called progressive Christianity, or just simple kind of unbelief as it's worked its way down through the, uh, in the Christian church through these ages, is that Jesus is an example. Wasn't he just a great guy? Jesus talks, right? He's just the best of the best of the best, and that's, that's kind of it. So he's this example for us to follow, but that's kind of it. Right? They back off after that. And that presents a number of challenges. And uh, I think that that's exactly what nations trying to point out These challenges the liberals bring on themselves when they want to take the Jesus of history and scripture and reduce it to something that's more manageable and something that they can, they can get down with uh, as opposed to what the Jesus of so the pages of scripture presents. It's like, oh, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a hard one. So, we'll get to the hard parts. Okay. Any, any questions or thoughts with that? Well, again, that's kind of a little bit of introductory. We've been doing introduction the whole time now. Yeah. I just want to talk about And so I'm, I I know that he came to faith late in the primitive Church, but was he? So we're, I I always thought that Paul was like there he might have seen Christ. Sure, yeah. So in the Pauline studies, it still you get that like we don't really know, you know. So we know that Paul's uh, Paul's sent to Jerusalem to study, and he sent to Jerusalem to study around the same time that Jesus is going to be there, and, and so. Um, you know, whether he personally met Jesus ever, he doesn't say, or right? he never mentions that in his writings, other than the road to Damascus. And so I met him there, alright. Um, so, they are at the same time, by and large. And, you know, it was certainly looking back from our standpoint exactly the same time, right, at this distance, but, you know, what kind of overlap goes on there? Uh, is it, no, right? it's just not talked about. Though it's certainly possible, and plenty of scholars kind of, you know, uh, trying to think of the right word, guess at it, uh, and try to make a, something that way, but. Other, other, other questions or, or thoughts? Shout them out if you got them. Okay, so let's look quickly here at this. What I think is a wonderful uh, preceding argument that C.S. Lewis picks up, and I, I think I ran into it in Mere Christianity, he probably published it in other places as well, which is the liar, lunatic, ward argument. Now, here's how this goes. If Jesus is simply the example, the the, the great example of what a human is supposed to be, what a man is supposed to be, and Jesus does it, and we can look to him and follow him and do what he did and say what he said and that would be faithful Christianity. The, the first problem is that Jesus thought he was the savior of the world. He thought the entire destiny of all humanity depended on him. Well, if that's true, amen. If it's false, what? The guy, he might as well be howling at the moon. Right, I mean, it's, it's like okay. Well, hang on. If if Anselm came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, the entire destiny of all humanity rides on me," I'd say, uh, "I'm taking you to back. Give you a spanking, right? Uh, we're going to spank this thing out of you. Um, <laughs> if that works, um, right?" So no, we. It, 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 that's, that's one of the great challenges of Jesus, honestly. Right? Is imagine, and of course, imagine being in his time, listening to this man speak and thinking, "Wow, you know, he's got hair in his knuckles just like me," but. There are claims not just to be God, but to be Yahweh, right? There are claims to be the Savior and Messiah of the world, the one who is going to remove our sins and remove the sins of the world. That's not normal talk, right? That's messianic talk, and if it's true, praise the Lord, we have Messiah. If it's false, we have a false Messiah. Okay, so then the liberals are in a situation where they want to kind of preserve that, like, religious feeling around Jesus, because that's important, right, that people feel religious, and and as we talked about a week or two ago, those feelings of dependence and so on are supremely important, not the knowledge of what's being said, just kind of the feelings, and so Jesus there, we want to like revere him, but as soon as we look at what he actually said, we have problems, because we don't want to revere him as the supernatural Messiah, the Savior of the world, Uh, and then sin is the next step, which we'll get to in just a moment, so when Lewis argues it, he says there are three options here. He's either a liar, in which case he's not a good moral teacher and we shouldn't follow him. He's a lunatic, in which case he's not a good moral teacher and we shouldn't follow him. Or he's the Lord, in which case he is a good man, a faithful man, speaking the truth, and we should follow him. Okay, that's kind of the way Lewis kind of pulls that together. Machen's doing just the same thing here, but kind of not, not quite as tightly as, uh, as, as Lewis does it a little bit later. Uh, but the messianic consciousness of Jesus... His own consciousness of himself as Messiah, the one sent from God to redeem mankind, um, is a real problem when your doctrine is trying to get rid of that, the redemption and the sin and those things. You're not focusing on that, you're focusing on how the church really is a benefit to society and all the things we can do to make society better and help build people and that kind of social stuff, which all that by itself is not a problem, but it's not Christianity, right? Christianity leads that direction. We're going to, you know, in following Christ, we're going to love each other and help people and so on. You bet. But that's got the kind of the effect for the cause. The cause is we're resting in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, the one whom he has sent to remove our sins and bring us into fellowship with himself. So we have this issue of messianic consciousness. And um, it's something he's brought up before as well, Even that terminology of messianic consciousness, how, how conscious is Jesus of his own messianic mission? That's a question, I think, that a scholar has been asking for quite a while, but sometimes because he says, he says things that make you wonder, or he tells people not to tell about him and things like that, so you know, scholars take those and, and kind of wonder with them. But clearly, the express, the express statements, in uh, fact, the one we looked at last week, uh, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Here I am. I'm going to pour out my lifeblood for the ransom of people from their sins before a holy God, indicates that there's more going on than I'm just a good example. Uh, but the liberals want him as an example, and they can't have it both ways. That's the issue there. They can't have him as just an example because as soon as you look at an actual example, he's far more than the liberals want him to be, and it makes problems for them. Does that make sense? You'll find this kind of a common reality of people who want Jesus. They want somehow to, like, be tied in with this Jesus movement or this Jesus character, but they don't really want Jesus, not the Jesus offered to us in Scripture and, of course, in history. But a a made-up Jesus. And that's a big problem all the time, is the made-up Jesus thing. So one other aspect, and I'll just kind of pause and see if there's any questions on the Messianic consciousness, is the issue of sin. So he brings up the issue of sin, and and particularly the sinlessness of Jesus as being a problem. So I asked in the notes, which isn't all that helpful for you right now probably, but what is the liberal conundrum about Jesus and sin? What's, What's the problem? If Jesus is sinless, then what's the uh, what's the rub? Because that, of course, is a historic teaching of the church and of the Bible—the sinlessness of Jesus. Um, maybe put it put it by way of contrast, and you can see this, particularly at the bottom of page seventy-eight, I think, seventy-seven. You can just turn there and see. But oh, yeah, in the middle section of seventy-seven there, where he, he just—it's like the summary of this point. Um, but they want to, the, the liberals want to present Jesus as not only the example of Christianity, but the very first Christian. He's the one who kind of like makes the mold, right? He's the one that, that, that's the, the figure that does everything the way it's supposed to be done. And is the beginning of Christianity, which of course, who's going to dispute something like that? He had somewhere in here as well that these liberal you know, preachers, they have Jesus on their lips all the time. They're always talking about Jesus, but they're rarely talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And I think that's an important thing because we can get tricked by that. We still get tricked by that. This guy talks about Jesus. He says good things about Jesus. I remember my unbelieving professors in college having great things to say about the book, the Bible. It's such an important book and this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it the Word of God? Is that the truth or not? I don't care how important the book is historically. Lots of books are important historically. No question. We're studying them all. We're, you know, liberal studies have been studying a bunch of books are important. But this is a different book. What makes it different? And it's not your esteem for it, the professor wants to esteem, while well, at the same time, really denigrating it. And that's what the liberal preachers are doing as well. So the issue with sin is that these modernists, these liberals, on the one hand, want to kind of tie into an evolutionary scheme where sin isn't even part of the picture. Okay, so if, in those notes there, what is the scientific advantage, I asked of denying sin, that's his terminology, the scientific advantage is if you deny sin, then you can affirm uh, evolution, without the issue of sin, right? It's just, we're just moving along, right? There's no issue of, like, rebellion against God and the guilt that goes along with that. It's more just a matter of natural processes and we're just moving along and God's, you know, for most of them, God's probably evolving right along with us. The world spirit moving right along, right? Uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, there's, there's much of that. And so, if, if the sin of Jesus, or not, if, if the sinlessness of Jesus is affirmed, it means that the sinfulness of everything everyone else. There's a problem there. Um, and if the sinlessness of Jesus is preserved as well, it puts him in an entirely different category than the rest of us. Relative to Christianity, even. Uh, so I put on Facebook from this a little earlier this week, um, you know, the question of you know, whether Jesus is the first Christian. And according to the way Machen is presenting it here, his answer is no. Not at all, because Christianity is about getting rid of sin. Jesus didn't have sin to get rid of. He's the way sin is getting rid of, you know, gotten rid of. He's the means by which sin is dealt with. We're the sinners. He's not. He's sinless. And if he's sinless, then he's a unique person under God, and he is the basis on which we come to God. He's not just an example of a good man, uh, that kind of thing. So I don't know if that fits in your mind or you have some questions around that. I'm sure you can read a couple of tasty quotes here before we move on. Any thoughts? on the sinlessness of Jesus and the problem that causes, especially from, again, this evolutionary standpoint, where they won't want to talk about sin or error just the way things develop. And they find there's no sin anymore. We just have evolution. Uh, so there's the scientific advantage there. And I've, I've certainly talked to plenty of evolutionists who talk just the same way. Sin's not the issue here. Right? But, of course, the whole Bible is concerned with sin being the issue before a holy God. That's the problem. Right? So Jesus comes to fix the problem. And we receive that as Christians what He has done, but we don't just follow Him because He's a good example. He is the actual Savior. We trust in Him. We rest in Him. We have faith in Him. Uh, we don't just mimic Him, although we do mimic Him. Yeah. Are you talking about evolution in the like, a biological macroevolution sense, or are you? Talking, I, I wasn't clear about. Like, I think so. I mean, it's okay. not okay. like He makes it clear either. Yeah. yeah I'm kind of guessing. I'm confused, by what um, I'm confused But I think it's because. It, what did He mean like spiritual evolution like we're moving forward in this religion sure both i think that the the issue of like physical evolution particularly you know out of darwin in this biological sense not even in the genetic sense we're talking about now nowadays but is like a an acid that eats through everything is put in right so you put it in that it starts going everywhere and then evolutionists say well that's not an appropriate way to use evolution and that's not an appropriate way to use evolution and everyone says be quiet who cares what you say? Um, so when it comes down to this, I think it's that physical reality that people are trying, or the physical notion, the notion of physical evolution that works its way into moral issues as well. But I think that's kind of where he's coming from there. That's the scientific basis. So why, why, would they, why would the Christian church be worried about evolution except on this kind of moral level, maybe to remove the issue of sin and therefore to remove the issue of redemption and all those things to be able to focus on what they want to focus on, the kind of liberal... Uh, modernist agenda, what they want to do in the church and that kind of thing, so that's kind of a stabbing answer, I'm not sure and, and maybe he'll explain it more later we can kind of get a fuller sense of what he means by that uh, yeah, Karen sin be as them to advance, that maybe, except there wouldn't be sin right, so whatever errors or wrong ways of doing things or however that's construed, possibly um, yeah, will all be worked out in this progress forward, right, we're just moving forward, this evolutionary move forward um, how, and if someone can explain to me how that notion of physical reality works along with the second law well, of therm, thermodynamics, entropy, I'm, I'm all ears. Um, because it seems like they move exactly the opposite directions. Um, and so that makes the scientific thing an interesting conundrum all by itself. But I think that's the idea, is that we get rid of sin before God at all. And these the, thing, the problems, it's not like that looking around are no problems in the world. There are, but it's just a matter of working them out and getting better, progressing past them. Right. And uh, I think if we're familiar with the theology of 100 years ago, there's plenty of that kind of stuff going on. So fits right. in. Yeah. Vicky. Well, it's the sort of junk that we were taught as kids. I don't know if it's still being taught every day and every way I'm getting better and better. That's right. <laughs> No vipers. Vipers <laughs> and diapers, which we were, but the liberal take on it is, we were all born Yeah, and so this, like, war on the doctrine of sin is no doubt widespread. It's not just liberals 100 years ago and before that were doing this. It's widespread, right? The, the doctrine of sin is, uh, my, my sense of it is it's following the doctrine of hell, which is to say on the way out the door of Christian ministry. The doctrine of hell is not preached or taught, almost period. Um, Of course, if you read the Bible, if you read the words of Jesus, there's plenty of it. But if you listen to preachers who preach in His name, very very little of it. And I think the doctrine of sin is just on the coattails of hell on the way out the door, as far as what people are going to, Christian ministers are going to focus on. Uh, Any other comments or questions? Okay, again, here's the last note there, on under. 75 to 78, the sinlessness of Jesus, the sinless Jesus as an object of faith and not merely an example. And this is kind of a refrain he's had through the chapter is that the early Christians and Paul here representing primitive Christianity, they're not, they're not just following the lifestyle of Jesus. They're not kind of taking on a new lifestyle that he's pioneered, um, though there's a little bit of that. Um, they're not just following Jesus as an example of this you know, new lifestyle, but they're looking to him as an object of faith, as an object of worship. They're worshiping Jesus. They're resting in Jesus. They're not just following Jesus. Okay, Like for when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, it would be wrong if we worshipped and, uh, and rested in Paul. For our salvation. He's the one who redeems us and brings us before the Holy God. No, 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 you say. Jesus does that. Jesus is the one, right? He's the object of faith. He's the object of worship. Uh, and therefore, we have ourselves a Jesus who's, as we get into the chapter a little farther not this morning, the supernatural man, the God-man that, again, Christianity has historically put on the table that God, you know, Jesus is both God and man, completely in both, but without sin. Two uh, distinct natures in one person forever. That's the word, not next week, but the week after. After I sent you notes ahead of time, and you know what you're talking about, and I've read them. All right. Here are a couple of quotes from page 77 that I thought were tasty and fun. Yet in the Gospels, Jesus is represented constantly as dealing with the problem of sin. He always assumes that other men are sinful. Yet he never finds sin in himself. That maybe sounds like a lot of us, but he's truly doing that. A stupendous difference is found here between Jesus' experience and ours. So the liberals want to say, we want to replicate Jesus' religious experience. That's the definitive religious experience of Christians is is what Jesus had. And he says that, that can't work that way. Because Jesus' religious experience, that is to say his orientation toward his heavenly father, is different than ours. Right. That's Uh, ours. Ours has to come through him, through the mediator. His was direct. We'll get that here throughout the whole New Testament. The Christianity of the primitive church is represented clearly as a way of getting rid of sin. But if Christianity is a way of getting rid of sin, then Jesus was not a Christian for Jesus. So far as we can see, had no sin to get rid of. And not only do I appreciate that, because he ends it on a dangling preposition, uh, which I love, but that uh, it's so clear. Right. It's so clear. That's like, if, if Christianity is a way of dealing with our sin, then, Christ, then Jesus is no Christian. Because he's the one who's actually dealing with our sin, not his own. Right? He, he approaches his father with a, as I said in the last note here, I was read it. Um, Jesus' true humanity is affirmed, okay, but, the, but is distinguished from our fallen nature. His religion was indeed true, but unencumbered by sin. Jesus, as he oriented himself toward his heavenly father, was in a particular relationship that we're not in with the heavenly father our relationship with the Eternal Father is through His Son, right? who has a peculiar relationship to Himself. And it's untremeled and unencumbered by sin. Okay? So, that's, that's important. Like Jesus' religious experience isn't supposed to be our religious experience. Okay? That's, that's not, we're supposed to imitate Him, but we're not supposed to be Him. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. We are the ones who are redeemed. Okay, So, we're to, we're to mimic Him and... Uh, follow his example, insofar as it's right for those who are being redeemed to follow that kind of example. I don't expect Caleb to go hang himself on the cross and redeem the world from sin. That would be to imitate Jesus, but to imitate him wrongly. Right? Rather, it would be to take up your cross daily and follow him. That would be the appropriate way of a Christian to engage in following Jesus without trying to be Jesus. Okay? Make sense? Yeah? Questions or comment? Yeah, I was going to say, when I read this too, I was thinking this might be this little thing about... <laughs> He doesn't, he never admits to any sin in himself. Right? This might be like the main reason why they want to imitate rather than worship, right? Because then, if we're imitating, I don't have to. And I too. You know, anything yeah. in myself, but I can see it in everybody else. Sure, that's funny. Yeah, yeah I thought about that. That works <laughs> nicely. Yeah. yeah. How convenient. Yeah. Um, here's the last quote I was thinking of. The religion of Jesus was a religion of untroubled sonship. And by word religion, if because he does use this word a number of times in it. And, again, it's a word that we've kind of tossed out. Like, you don't hear people talk about religion. It's kind of like a cuss word. Yeah, he's going to say it, uh, except in private company, when you can trust people. Uh, anyway, it's, it's it's a word that, uh, yeah, we, we think of as like human efforts toward God and all that. But I think as he's using it, it's just his orientation toward God, the relationship that he has toward God. Now, Jesus is God, but he's also not the Father who sent him. Right, So there's this Trinitarian reality that goes on in the Incarnation. There's a lot of theology built into that thing. There's a lot of thinking that's gone into understanding how Jesus is God, yet is the Son of God and sent by the Father. Uh, and his relationship to the Father is his religious orientation. That's what he's saying here. But the religion of Jesus was a religion of untroubled sonship. Christianity is a religion of the attainment of sonship by the redeeming work of Christ. Okay. I think that's about as clear as anyone can state it. Right, the, the, Jesus had a particular untroubled relationship with his father. We're all troubled. Our relationship with God is through the mediator. It's through Jesus, the one who had the untroubled relationship with his heavenly father. Right? So uh, the distinction of Jesus in, is, is absolutely unique in his thought, yet there are parts of the experience that we are going to replicate and we are going to look up to and, and try to emulate, but not in the first place. The first place is that we trust him that we worship Jesus as God and trust him as our Savior. And then once we do that, then we can move into the field of obeying him and and serving him and and imitating him uh, as is appropriate for Christians to imitate the Christ, knowing, once again, I'll close on this, that he is the Christ, which is Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that that, uh, God had promised. And we are Christians. We are little Christs. We're not Christ. We're little Christs. And that's a different position. Right, we do imitate Christ, we do, but, but first we rest in Him and trust Him and worship Him as the primary reality. And swallowed up in that is our obedience and our, our service to Him. So, any, any closing thoughts or, or questions? Thanks for slugging along in this one. And uh, ideally, the next time you'll have more to work with ahead of time, and we'll try to finish the chapter. We're kind of halfway through this chapter. I was hoping the uh, the chapters would be as as neat and tidy as last week's. The Bible, which is like eleven pages long, so hey, that's very that's bite-sized and doable. This one's bigger again, so anyway, there we'll deal with that. And uh, thank you for your patience. I hope it's a blessing. Let's close with prayer.